You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Hurricane Sandy was one of the most devastating storms that our country's ever seen, especially the northeast coast of our country. It was just a few years ago it hit, and if you look at pictures uh, of especially the coast, but even moving way inland, um, there was almost just countless amounts of devastation. However, on the New Jersey coast, and New Jersey was one of the hardest hit places of this storm, there was this house sitting out on the coast amongst all the devastation and rubble. This one house. This man by the name of Ed Wright was a high school architecture teacher. And Ed had designed his own house several years before. And after the storm, which again, every house anywhere within miles of his was not just hurt, uh, you know, messed up. It was most of them gone. And here his sat. They studied his house. They wanted to know, what on earth did you do? And every structural engineer that ever looked at the house kept coming back to one thing. It was the foundation. If you've been to the coast or you know somebody that lives on the coast, you know that, especially on the east coast, it's almost a law now that if you build something within X amount of uh, miles from the coast, that it be raised up. Um, Like uh, on Isle of Palms, where my in-laws live, if you build a house now, it has to be built on stilts at least 10 feet above the ground. This is so if there is a hurricane or flood water, the water can pass right through. Well, Ed not only built his house on pilings, on stilts, the big, big factor was he built it not only sunk into concrete, but reinforced concrete. And what all the engineers kept saying was, this man went way beyond what any code said that he had to in building his house. This man had an understanding that the foundation mattered. What is a foundation? It's an underlying base or or support. It's the ground with which we build something on. You guys have heard me talk about this before, but this is why we obsess when we go to Guatemala and we work with Casas Por Cristo and we spend what seems like this inordinate, painful amount of time on the foundation. If you don't get the foundation right, everything else will fall. Well, what you build something on determines how long it will last, how long it's going to stand. But there are other questions that are involved in deciding what you're building, how you're building it. Questions like, why are we building this? What purpose is this going to serve? For Ed, he's thinking, this is my home where my family's going to live, and I don't want it to ever be wiped out. Well, nowhere are these questions more important and appropriate when it comes to foundations than the church. Over the next few weeks, we're going to specifically answer the question, how? We know that the what is very clear of the church. The, the mission of the church 
is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here at the brook, the way we word this is living intentionally to bring God's kingdom everywhere we go. That's what we're called to do. How are we called to do it? Well, that's what you would call a strategy. And here at the brook, there's nothing that we do that we give you more of a cheat on than our strategy. Because everything that we do, everything that we produce, everything that you read from us has our strategy plastered on it right below our name. Worship, grow, serve together. We believe that this is how we carry out this mission. And this morning, we're going to take a a look over the next few weeks at, at all these elements of the strategy. This morning, we're going to begin with worship. And as we begin, I want to submit this to you. Worship is about what you drink and why you drink it. Let me go a little further. Worship is about the water that you drink and why you drink it. In 1999, I became a runner. When I became a runner, I also became a water drinker. Um, In the height of my running, which I am not there anymore, my friends, um, when I was running marathons, I would drink usually four liters of water a day, maybe more. I would actually say to you, I have had a doctor at one time tell me, you're drinking too much water. I never thought I would hear someone say those words. I'm not a runner anymore, but I still drink a lot of water, probably about three liters of water today. Now, maybe you're here today and you'd say, yeah, Brian, not there. In fact, the likelihood of anyone in this room drinking more water than me is very, very low. I'm not saying like that that to pat myself on the back. The fact of the matter is, Most people, just if you line up a bunch of drinks, they're not going to go, oh, water, give it, give it, give it. Coffee, Coke, tea, I mean, put them all out there. We don't have like this magnetism to water. But I'm holding on to hope today, friends, that one of you, maybe just one of you is going to leave here today and you're going to go, I'm going to make a change and I'm going to drink some more water. Well, I want to warn you, you're going to be faced with a dilemma. What kind? (laughs) This is just what MAPCO had today. And I will say this is a little bit of a shot at MAPCO. There's no Perrier there, okay? I don't drink Perrier, but if you're hunting for mineral water, apparently uh, MAPCO does not carry it. But they do have alkaline water, which I don't know what that means. Only where, place I hear alkalines in batteries. So that one's out for me. Smart water, which I will be honest, if I drink water, I purchase water, this is what I buy. Um, obviously, first of all, for the mere hope that, hey, maybe. Um, but, but I also like the bottle. It's very stiff. You have spring water, which is what most of these things are. You know, and they, they try to make you think that their spring is better than everybody else's. And I will say that the smart water, um, what they tell you is that their water is actually not from a spring. It's from the clouds. <laughs> Life water, that's pretty compelling. Electrolyte water. 
And then this is the one that you can buy at Starbucks for like $8, ethos water. There's nothing special about it, but some of the money that you pay toward it goes to feed children. So, hey, um, what kind of water do I prefer? Water, water. Like, in fact, if you would like later, I'll let you come up and see if you can taste all of these and figure out which one it is I refilled from the refrigerator over in the office. You would never be able to tell. I just drink water, water, okay? But here's the thing. Obviously, I'm not talking about tangible water when we're talking about worship. You're talking about something spiritual, aren't you, Brian? You're on to me. Here's the good news. This morning, we're going to hear Jesus tell us what kind of water it is that we need. And he tells us that it's the kind that wells up and overflows. Look with me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is the story of the woman at the well. John 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and a Jew would also not address a woman in this context in that environment. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to this well to draw water. So this lady shows up and Jesus asks something of her. Give me a drink. Immediately she questions, why are you asking me for a drink? Are are you unfamiliar with how things work here? Actually what's going on is that this woman is completely unprepared for every possible aspect of what's happening here. And this situation, catch this, this situation would have been immediately uncomfortable. If there had happened to be someone like a bystander just standing around waiting for the bus near the well, they'd have been like, ooh, what's going on over there? That guy's talking to that woman, a Jew and Samaritan. 
this would have been immediately uncomfortable. Well, let's parallel this and understand that when Jesus asks us to do something uncomfortable, or Jesus puts us in uncomfortable situations, we are always going to be tempted to question his request and qualify our excuses. Did you get that? Whenever we're put in a place of, this might be awkward or uncomfortable, this might be painful, we're going to question God's request, and we're going to qualify our excuses. And believe me, we will have them. Well, Jesus responds to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you life-giving water. You would realize that what he has to offer is much, much greater than what he's requested. Friends, what Jesus is offering is always greater than what he's requesting. May not seem like it, may not feel like it, but what Jesus is offering you and offering me is always going to be greater than what he's requesting. Well, this lady is much more unprepared for, for this than you and I would be. So she says to him, because she's looking at this through her human eyeballs, okay, buddy, how are you going to get this water? You don't have a bucket. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You know what this lady's doing is the same thing that we often do. We very, very often look for the Lord to meet our needs on our terms. Like we think, there's no way God can do that. I only have this in my bank account. Oh, you think God depends on your bank account. (laughs) I think not. Lord, you want me to give out of what? You give and I'll supply. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply your needs according to what? His riches. Not yours, his. Jesus says to this woman, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. And this next statement, when I was in New Testament Greek with Dr. Tim Trammell at Dallas Baptist University, Dr. Trammell could not read John 4, 14 and 15 without becoming choked up, tears flowing down his face. Because I don't throw a lot of Greek at you here on Sunday mornings. But this phrase is in what we call the aorist tense. And what that means is it's past and present and future. This water that wells up, this salvation that God gives us. He has saved us. He is still saving us. And he will ultimately save us. Jesus says this water will become in him a spring. The life that Jesus pours into us, when he pours it into us, it's living and active. So if you've ever seen a pond before, wrong image. Have you ever been around a pond? I don't want anything to do with ponds. In fact, my drive, when I leave my house every day on Martin Road, it's not a pond, but there's this thing I think maybe would be referred to as a creek. That water doesn't move in there. 
And I'm pretty sure over the last six months, there's a film about this thick forming on the top of that water. You know there's a term called pond scum. There's a reason. The water doesn't move. May get more water added, may have some evaporate, but it goes nowhere. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a spring. Jesus fills us so that he can erupt back out of us. We have a problem, we have a barrier in understanding this in Christianity in America. You know, a great image, I think, and it's very, very simple, but a great image of what we ought to think about is that there's this magic machine, I don't know if y'all have seen it, out in the lobby against the wall. People in other countries must marvel at this. I walked right up to it this morning, and all I had to do was bend down and push a little button. I just drank all the water I wanted to. But you know what? Christianity in America has become more like a Coke freestyle machine. Are you familiar with the Coke freestyle machine? There are classes, I think, that you're supposed to take before you use it. They've got one in Atlanta Bread. They've got one in Five Guys, too. And I know this for a reason. I go to Five Guys, yes, for the burger, yes, for the amazing fries, but because when I go to Five Guys, it's almost always on the weekend, and it's almost always at night. And once I get past, like, five, I don't need to be drinking any more caffeine, Right? I can go to the freestyle machine and get a caffeine-free Diet Coke with cherry. I don't remember the number. It's in the thousands of choices that you have on the Coke freestyle machine. Isn't that marvelous? But you see, that's a picture of Christianity in America. I'm going to go to this church, and I'm going to see if they got everything just the way that I like it. And if not... I'm taking my ball and I'm going home and I'll go look for another one. And let me figure out the parts of following Jesus that I like and I'll take those, but those that make me uncomfortable, I'll just leave those at home. The Coke freestyle Christianity here, friends, is causing an improper view of the Sabbath and an improper view of the church. We've become so infected with and by consumerism, this worldview and expectation that the church is here to meet my needs. And here's the biggest problem. Please hear this. When you approach the church that way, you approach Jesus that way. Jesus didn't say, hey, come let me know what you want to do and we'll work something out. He said, come follow me. I want to ask you this morning to take a moment and let's consider, do I approach the church, do I view the church through the lens of Christianity or consumerism? Well, how am I going to know this? Well, I will share this with you. Evidence can be found in how you view what happens here on Sundays. Think through how you view what happens here on Sundays, and this will give you some insight. Consumerism, and and understand, a lot of this will not be on a conscious level. But consumerism, I wake up today and I go, well, God, I, I wonder what you got for me today. 
I, I hope the preaching is good. Maybe one of those tall, dark, and handsome guys will preach instead of the short, middle-aged guy. One of you has thought it before. I hope it's good. It's almost like we're buying a ticket to the Braves game. Well, I hope they're going to win today. I hope so-and-so is going to pitch. See, Christianity wakes me up in the morning and says, Lord, how can I serve you today? How could I possibly be more like Christ through serving your people today? See, like if you look around the room, you'll see certain people in here in these shirts that say the brook on them. They're not wearing those because they wake up every Sunday and go, this is the most stylish thing in my closet. (laughs) They're wearing them because every Sunday they come here, they gather with us for worship, and then they go right back out of here and they go serve. Friends, I'm going to tell you, maybe by next week we will be gathered in here with babies and preschoolers. If some of you do not make the decision, I don't care if you think you're called to it or not. Nobody's called to change a diaper. Nobody in their right mind is called to that. But some of us get to do it. How you are viewing and approaching the church can be seen in how you view what happens here on Sundays. Remember this, Jesus fills us so that he can be poured back out of us. You guys know... Uh, I kind of like baseball. I know, big secret. I share that with you to say this. Jesus is about to throw the greatest curveball ever. Remember, hey, sir, if you have this water, I want some. Why does she want it? Two reasons. Number one, I won't be thirsty again. And number two, I won't have to haul my happy self all the way out here to this well. So, Next, next statement should probably be something in line with that, right? Look at verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back to the well. I'm just going to say this. For most of us, this is where the conversation with Jesus would end. Okay, the whole ask me for a drink thing, that was one thing. Now I'm out. But something compels this woman to keep talking The woman answered Jesus and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you live with right now is not your husband. So what you've said is true. Jesus, think about this. I know you and I, we don't know the woman at the well. But I think it's fairly safe to say Jesus just exposed the thing in this woman's life that she would have wanted to keep more secret than anything else. If there's anything that she would maybe go to a party and expect hopefully no one will bring that up, this is it. And Jesus goes right for the heart, right for the jugular. Jesus is saying, if you really want this living water, I want you to know ahead of time, um, it might hurt a little. In Psalm 51, and Isaiah 58, David and Isaiah both help us understand that 
what the Lord is looking for in worship is first and foremost, it's obedience, not sacrifice. See, our, our offering of worship is our obedience. In the offering and the obeying, this is actually where we wind up receiving. However, in the receiving, it's going to cost us something. Because to worship Jesus actually means to follow him. My friend Brad Briscoe put this quote up on Facebook last week and and just wanted to get an idea of how it resonated with people. Here's the quote. We need to be more concerned with following Jesus, which he told us to do numerous times, and less with worshiping Jesus, which he never once told us to do. What do you think about this? Well, I chimed in, and I said, first of all, I agree with it. I hope that I agree with it because I've said it before and preached it before. But then I made this follow-up comment. I will also say I have never made that statement or one like it on a Sunday morning without someone coming and pushing back on it. And here's why I think that is. What it sounds like we're saying is, don't worry about worshiping Jesus. And that's not what we're saying. What is being said and what desperately needs to be understood is that if we're not following and obeying Jesus, we're not worshiping him. Worship is not defined as or by us coming together and singing to the Lord on Sundays. That's part of it. But what happens when we gather here together on Sundays should be an overflow of what's happening in our lives through obediently following and pursuing Jesus. Brad kind of went on to say this, truly following Jesus must involve dying to self, sacrifice, suffering, peacemaking, radical reconciliation, living for the sake of others, but instead we focus on worshiping Jesus as the gathered church. In a real sense, what happens when we do that is we've diluted both following Jesus and worshiping him. So Jesus throws the curveball. The woman tries to foul it off. She swings. Look at verse 19. Now remember, no, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. Now listen to this, verse 19. So the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem, that that's the place where people ought to worship. What does that have anything to do with what's going on with her. It has nothing to do with it. But here's what Jesus says to her. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But, however, the hour is coming, and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and 
and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus looked at this woman and said, That's me. She's trying to avoid the condition of her heart at any cost. So what does she gravitate toward? Religion. She gravitates toward religion. And I want to just make sure that you understand this. We have that temptation as well. Because see, some of us were actually maybe even tempted today... Maybe we're in the same place that this woman is, and we're trying to guard anybody from knowing these things. But you know what? I'm going to get up and go to church because in checking that off, maybe God will just like, okay, let her go. Maybe he'll get off my back. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be okay in the end. You understand the implications of things that we think. And again, it's never on this conscious level, but we think things. What we're basically going to allow ourselves to believe is that God, like, sees things maybe with drones. And, like, God could see that I got here. But then once I got in the door, ah, out of my range. He really is not focused on that I'm here. God wants to know why. God wants you to know that you're here today. Not so that your needs would be met, but because you have the opportunity to gather with the body of Christ and exalt the one who saved you. And God wants you to know that in the midst of all of that, you don't need a facade or a wall put up so that nobody knows what's going on. And that maybe every once in a while, it's okay to just say, you know what, Lord, I don't feel like singing today. In fact, if I'm being really honest, I probably just need to come over here at the foot of the cross, lay on my face, and let it all go. I have people that will tell me at times after services, Pastor, I almost stood up and said amen. I'm like, why didn't you? Let it out. Thank you. (laughs) Remember something. Why did this woman come to the well? She came for water. Jesus says, I have life-giving water. I can satisfy your soul. Well, what this woman does next is that she's essentially saying, Hey, you know what? I, I changed my mind. I'm not really thirsty anymore. And that's what it looks like when we come here on a Sunday, but then we put up this facade or we say, hey, God, I'm not really comfortable with you getting in my business. I would just say to you this morning, Jesus died for your business. Don't miss what Jesus has for you because you're scared of what Jesus wants from you. Because what Jesus is offering is always greater than what he's requesting. Friends, when Jesus begins searching our hearts and our lives, true worship happens through submission and surrender. And we miss this if we're more focused on religious practice than on relationship with the living God. 
This is why I would challenge you that before you come here to gather with the body of Christ every Sunday, you ought to take 15, 20 minutes and maybe go get on your back porch or in your closet and read the Psalms and just say, Lord, I'm about to go gather with the body of Christ. There's something supernatural about that. Prepare my heart, prepare my mind, empty me of myself that I might be filled with you. But I know the trap. We wake up late. We're trying to get three kids that feels like six to get in a minivan. And by the time we get here, it's a good thing we hadn't massacred somebody. I know some of you, I said a few weeks ago, I know some of you young mothers are like, come on down here, Brian. I'm going to punch you in the face. I understand that. Maybe the night before. You need to go get on the porch or in the closet. Lock the door. Anything that keeps us from the greater issues of the heart, friends, is is a stumbling block. Jesus says, "I, I want to fill you so that I can be poured back out of you. I will be a spring in him, a spring in her that wells up, that overflows out into eternal life. Friends, the question remains, do you know the supplier of living water? And if so, is his life-giving water becoming in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life? What that means in plain English, friends, is this. Adoration is always going to lead to proclamation. Adoration, it's always going to lead to transformation. Adoration, it always does something to us. Look at verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that Jesus was standing here talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this truly be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And as you're going to see here in a few weeks, some really cool things happen. Because one woman began to not only adore but began to proclaim her adoration. Confession to God of who He is and what He's done is always going to lead to proclamation of that to others. If you go home and you Google and you look for stories of people who met the person that saved them, it will be endless. You know, there's the story of the man who literally dropped dead in the subway station, but hey, here's this woman who, I don't know who this is, but drops down, gives the man CPR, and he's still alive today. Or the woman whose car that went into the river, and the man jumped in, pulled the lady out of the car. And you see these stories of when these people finally get to meet face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, the person that saved them. There's no embarrassment. There's no hesitation. There's just this freedom to say, this guy saved me. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. 
He risked his life for me. Friends, Jesus did not risk his life for you. He gave it. What happens in this room on a Sunday morning ought to not only be the overflow of what God is doing within us, but it ought to also create an outpouring of what God is doing through us. Saved people are proclaimers. Disciples are disciple makers. If you're expecting the Lord to pour into you with no expectation of his spirit and power being poured back out of you, then you are missing what it means to truly worship the Lord. And in fact, I would submit to you this morning, it is possible you have substituted worshiping Jesus for following Jesus. And you go home today and you search the Gospels for any place that Jesus said, come and worship me. You won't find it. But he said over and over and over, come follow me. When we do, we will live a life of worship. It it will just happen. Worship is about what you choose to drink and why you choose to drink it. Jesus is offering living water that will well up in you to eternal life and will pour back out of you to transform the lives of others. Are you tasting that? I don't know what our hesitation is in looking at the world but I know that if you're thirsty right now, you want some of what I got. There are thirsty people all around you. Desperately, desperately thirsty people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, today we just confess that we are not worthy on our own to approach you. We are not worthy on our own to be saved. Lord, we thank you today that we even have a remote idea of what love is and how to love because you have first loved us. Lord, we ask this morning that if we are hungering and thirsting and chasing and pursuing things of this world that may satisfy us for a moment but ultimately will leave us longing. Lord, just renew in us today the hunger and thirst for you 
Lord, would you bring us to a place of brokenness over our sin? Bring us to that place of confession and repentance. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to tell you today that we have been praying that today your life would change and that you would know that only Jesus can change it. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing together. Some of our leaders, pastors, elders will be in the back. Um, Those folks would love to share the gospel with you, to pray with you. If you need to come to the steps or the foot of the cross, I just encourage you to come. Lord, we say this morning that our desire is that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, the thoughts of our mind, God, the words out of our lips, our actions in secret. God, our desire is that every part of our being and our life would be pleasing in your sight today. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.